Well, I wonder what you think about Christmas. Are you the type of person who just can't wait for Christmas? You might be caught listening to Christmas music before Thanksgiving, maybe even in the summertime. Are you the type of person who enjoys the lights on the houses and decorations around town? You just love driving around and seeing the beauty and all the work that people put into uh, putting on these displays. Are you the type of person who's more contemplative during this time of, of the year? You just kind of take it all in as you enjoy sipping on your hot chocolate. Or maybe you're the type of person who dreads this season. You dread this season because it's more defined by obligation than celebration. Obligations to buy gifts for people you're trying not to offend. <laughs> Obligations to attend parties or activities that you would rather skip. Maybe even obligations to come to church. Or perhaps you dread this season for other reasons. It means getting together with family of whom you might say with Bill Bo Baggins at his 111th birthday. I know less than half of you, half as much as I should like. And I like less than half of you, half as much as you deserve. I wonder what you think about Christmas. I wonder what you think about this Christmas. Are you excited to be returning to the traditions that were skipped last year because of COVID? Are you looking forward to traveling in a time of rest? Or are you continue to isolate yourself, hoping that maybe next year things will get back to normal? Perhaps your heart is heavy because of fracture in your family. Perhaps you're grieving because this will be the first Christmas without your loved one. In this room right now, there are all of those emotions and attitudes towards Christmas. There are those who just can't wait for Saturday to come. And there are those who are looking to Saturday as, as a time of dread and sorrow. So how can we as the people of God, celebrate Christmas when there are all of these differences among us? How can we have joy on December 25th when we're all thinking differently about it? Well, I don't think it would be helpful for us if we all sat down together and watched some sappy Hallmark movie like my wife made me watch last night. <laughs> Cultivate the... I enjoyed it, Rachel. Try to muster up the Christmas spirit by watching those awful cartoons, claymations of old. I don't think that would be helpful. For all of us to celebrate Christmas, no matter how we're feeling, we need something that transcends what's going on around us, right? We need our, uh, something that transcends our traditions, our relationships, our expectations, and our circumstances. We need to orient around something that is worth celebrating no matter what is going on around us or what is going on in us, whether we're alone or whether we're in a crowd. We need something that helps us make sense of the joys and the sorrows so that you can celebrate Christmas whether you're up or whether you're down. We need something to celebrate even as we look at the news of hardship around the world and in our nation. Is there something like that that's worth celebrating no matter what is going on around you? Well, I think there is. 
And I don't think it's Santa Claus or Rudolph or presents under the tree or the anticipation of joy of the gifts that are open. There is only one transcendent reality, one historical event that is worth celebrating, whether you're parting in Colombia, whether you're deployed around the world, whether your family is whole and filled with joy or broken and filled with sorrow. And that historical event worth celebrating, as you've probably guessed, is the birth of Jesus. The birth of Jesus. It might seem strange to some as to why we even celebrate the birth of Jesus. After all, we don't celebrate the birth of others in antiquity and even of modernity, for that matter. There are men who, whose lives have shaped history and we feel their influence around the world today, and yet nobody celebrates them apart from them having an entry in some history book. So why does the whole world take time to celebrate the birth of Jesus? How does his birth and life allow us to celebrate, no, celebrate Christmas no matter what is going on around us or how we feel? Well, I think the answer to that is found in many places, but for our study today, I want to focus in on one brief statement from the Apostle Paul that he wrote to his friend and ministry partner, Tim, uh, Titus. So if you have a Bible or a Bible app, I would encourage you to turn it to Paul's letter to Titus. And we'll be looking at Titus chapter 2. The title of this message is The Epiphany of Grace. And our text for today is Titus chapter 2, verse 11. If you're visiting our church, it's our practice here at Hope Bible Church to preach through books of the Bible verse by verse. Uh, we don't want to miss anything that God has revealed to us. And so we've been in a study through this letter of Titus. And if you've been with us, you know that we've really raced through chapter 2, verses 1 through 10, so that we could arrive at verse 11 today, being the Sunday before Christmas. Titus 2.11 is the beginning of a sentence that actually goes all the way to verse 14, but we're just going to focus in on verse 11 today, unpacking the words that, that are contained here. But for the sake of context, let's just read Titus chapter 2, verses 11 to 14. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation to all men, instructing us to deny ungodliness and worldly desires and to live sensibly, righteously, and godly in the present age, looking for the blessed hope and the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Christ Jesus, who gave himself for us to redeem us from every lawless deed and to purify for himself a people for his own possession, zealous for good deeds. Now, it's going to take us at least a couple more messages to make it through that whole sentence. And today, again, we will focus in on just verse 11. Now, this is not a passage we typically go to at Christmas time to think about the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ, but it does speak specifically and directly to the birth, the life, death, and resurrection of Christ as a whole. It's noteworthy that even though Jesus is named in verse 14, in verse 11, Paul chooses to refer to Jesus as the grace of God. The grace of God. The grace of God is a reality that I hope we will all leave today understanding better than when we came in. If you want to know why the birth of Jesus is worth celebrating the way it is by billions around the world and how we can celebrate his birth no matter what is going on, 
in or around us? The answer is this. The grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation to all men. To help organize our thoughts as we work through these words, we're going to study this just under three headings. First, the unique appearance of God's grace. The unique appearance of God's grace. Second, the grace that appeared. And then third, the result of God's grace. So let's begin by considering the unique appearance of God's grace. As you look at verse 11, Paul actually begins this sentence in the Greek with the verb. A woodenly literal translation would read this way, For it has appeared, the grace of God, bringing salvation to all men. He could have just as easily written it in the order that we have it in the English, but he chose to write it the way he did to bring emphasis to the appearance of this grace. Uh, The word translated appearance in the Greek is epiphano, from which we get the word epiphany. It's not usually this way, but in this case, the Greek word and the English word essentially mean exactly the same thing. An appearance, uh, a manifestation. Sometimes we think of this as a thought or an idea appearing in our mind. I had an epiphany. But generally, it just means something that appears on the scene, something that shows up unexpectedly. This is actually a rare word in the New Testament. Paul uses it uh, just a few verses down in chapter 3, verse 4. You can look there where it says, But when the kindness of God our Savior and His love for mankind appeared. Essentially saying the same thing as he does here in 2.11. In one place in the book of Acts, it refers to the sun and the stars not appearing after many days of a storm to those who were sailing on the sea. But significantly, this word is found on the lips of Zechariah as he prophesies about the coming Messiah after the birth of John. In that prophecy, Zechariah says this, The sunrise from on high will visit us to shine, those who, uh, to shine upon those who sit in darkness and the shadow of death to guide our feet into the way of peace. There, Epiphano is translated as to shine. So Zechariah looked ahead to the birth of the Messiah, which was just a few months away at his point. And he says, the Messiah will shine. The Messiah will appear to those in darkness. And Paul, now several decades later, looks back at the Messiah who came and describes that event as the grace of God appearing. This is helpful to us because it indicates to us that the appearance from the sunrise on high is Zechariah calls it, is something that hasn't happened before. Now, the language Paul uses, the grace of God has appeared, itself speaks to a unique appearing, but it's not as though the grace of God has never been seen before. You may have heard or even thought that popular notion that the God of the Old Testament was a wrathful God, and the God of the New Testament is, is a gracious God. But that simply isn't true. There are many passages throughout the Old Testament where the grace of God is represented and portrayed in magnificent ways. In fact, there's even one particular passage where a man, Moses, says to God, I want to know you. I want to see you. I want to see you in all of your glory. And God says, you want, you want to see me? You want to know me? Let me tell you who I am. I'm compassionate. I'm merciful. I'm gracious, I'm patient, I'm forgiving, and I'm just. 
God presents himself as a gracious God. That passage is Exodus 34. It's repeated numerous times throughout the Old Testament, and we'll come back to it in a little bit. The grace of God has been witnessed and experienced in magnificent ways long before the coming of Jesus. And we could go all the way back to Genesis chapter 3, when the first two humans that God made disobeyed his singular command. Adam and Eve ate of the tree that God told them not to eat. And instead of killing them on the spot and starting over, he was gracious. And instead he killed an animal and covered their bodies, their nakedness, with the skin of that animal, representing that the shedding of blood is what brings forgiveness. And then the very next human being to come into this world, Cain, Adam and Eve's firstborn, killed Abel, their second son. And instead of giving Cain the death penalty which he deserved for the murder of his brother, God was gracious and he banished him from society. God's grace was manifested to the first three human beings and it has been manifested to every human being ever since. Though individuals and families and nations have all lived in rebellion against God, he has shown extraordinary grace to all of mankind. That God chose a nation, Israel, to be his people among the rest of the world, to shine his light and to represent his character and his standards of living is a gracious thing. That God would give his people the law by which they could live and flourish and be a light to the nations was an incredible demonstration of grace. There was even a blessing that the Lord gave to the priests by which they could bless the people continually. Maybe you've heard this ironic blessing. It's found in Numbers chapter 6. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you and give you peace. And excuse me, and lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. When you read the Bible cover to cover, and you should, but encourage you to do that, maybe in 2022 might be your first time to do that. You cannot come away with this notion that the God of the Old Testament is any different than the God of the New Testament. From start to finish, he is gracious. So if that's true, why does Paul say in Titus 2.11, the grace of God has appeared? What's so special about this manifestation of God's grace? The answer is in the word epiphano itself. You see, in all the ways that mankind experienced God's grace, it was always mediated through something else. Animal sacrifices mediated the gracious forgiveness of God. The law of Moses graciously mediated, excuse me, mediated God's gracious character and moral standards. God's gracious acts of deliverance were mediated through men and women through the centuries. God's gracious calls of repentance were mediated through the prophets of old. In these ways and more, God's grace shined, but it was like a lamp that was hung in heaven, shining its light on the earth. But the day that the birth of Jesus took place, the grace of God was no longer mediated. It was embodied. It actually came on the scene in human form. This is what we read in John chapter 1 earlier. You can turn there if you like, just for a moment. You want, might want to have your finger there. I forgot to mention that earlier. John chapter 1, is as John is describing who this Jesus is, he piles on descriptions that make it clear that Jesus is the divine Messiah, 
Listen again to verse 17 of John 1. For the law was given through Moses, grace and truth were realized through Jesus Christ. Grace and truth were realized through Jesus Christ. That word realized is genomai, which generally means to come into being. It's used in verse 3 that where it says, apart from Him, nothing came into being that has come into being. Now, obviously, grace and truth didn't come into being, didn't come into existence at the birth of Christ. But what John is saying is that now they are seen and manifested in a unique way. They came to their fullest and complete expression in the person of Jesus Christ. But another way, before and after the birth and life of Jesus, one could say that a person could demonstrate the grace of God. Uh, they could speak the truth. But Jesus is the grace of God. Jesus is the truth. If you were to look up grace and truth in God's dictionary, the first entry would say the person of Jesus Christ. Jesus is grace. Jesus is the truth. This is the sense in which the epiphany of grace is different from the expressions of grace that we've seen all throughout the Old Testament. Again, the grace of God was no longer shining from heaven to the earth. Now, the grace of God came to this earth and its light spread on the earth. That is the unique appearance of grace. Now, we've already identified the grace of God as being Jesus himself. But let's explore that a little bit further under our second heading, the grace that appeared. The grace that appeared. Looking back at Titus Chapter 2, verse 11, again, it says, The grace of God has appeared. Paul, under the inspiration of the Spirit, chooses to say that grace appeared. Again, he didn't say that Christ appeared. He didn't say that love of God appeared. He didn't say that the compassion of God appeared. He said the grace of God appeared. And we know he's talking about Jesus because, again, if you look down at verse 3, let me read verses, or chapter 3, Read verses 4 and 5. But when the kindness of God our Savior and His love for mankind appeared, He saved us, not on the basis of deeds which we have done in righteousness, but according to His mercy, by the washing and regeneration and renewing by the Holy Spirit, whom He poured out upon us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior. And the way He says that, he's identifying Jesus Christ our Savior as both the kindness and the love of God in verse 3 and the grace of God in chapter 2, verse 11. Jesus Christ our Savior is the means by which the kindness and love of God are displayed and by which we are saved. It's like what we read in John three sixteen: For God so loved the world, He loved the world in this way, that He gave His only begotten Son, that whosoever should not Whosoever believes in Him should not perish, but have eternal life. So when Paul says the grace of God appeared, bringing salvation to all men, that can only be a reference to the person of Jesus Christ. But I think it would be helpful to circle back to Exodus 34 that I mentioned earlier to understand why what God says to Moses, what that has to do with Paul's choice of words. Again, in Exodus 33, Moses asked God, I want to I see your glory. I want to know you. And here are the actual words that God said to Moses. The Lord, 
the Lord God, compassionate and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in loving kindness and truth, who keeps loving kindness for thousands, who forgives iniquity, transgression and sin. Yet he will by no means leave the guilty unpunished, visiting the iniquity of fathers on the children and on the grandchildren to the third and fourth generations. These aren't the only attributes of God, of course, but when God says, this is who I am, when He wants you to know who He is in His person, who He wants you to know Him to be, He says, I'm compassionate, I'm gracious, I'm patient, I'm forgiving, I'm full of loving kindness, and I'm just. I'm truth. Now, it's interesting that of the eight times that this is repeated throughout the Old Testament, only one of those repetitions includes the aspect of justice. And then the rest of them all have variations on which attributes that God lists are included. For example, Psalm 86 verse 15 says, But you, O Lord, are God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in loving kindness and truth. Really, the shortest summary of these attributes is in Psalm 108, verse 4, which says, For your loving kindness is great above the heavens, and your truth reaches to the skies. Again, these are declarations of who God is. These are the manifestations of God's glory. Loving kindness, grace, compassion, truth. And so it's with great intentionality that the Apostle John, again, back in chapter 1, verse 14, says this, And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we saw His glory. Glory is of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. John wants us to know who Jesus is. And he says, Jesus is the God who spoke to Moses and revealed Himself as the God of grace and truth. Jesus is the glory of God. Now we know Jesus is God because He is the embodiment of the attributes of the grace of grace and truth. Paul says in Colossians 2.9, For in Him all the fullness of deity dwells bodily. All of God's attributes dwell and reside in Jesus Christ because He is God. And it is through Him that God extends grace to all of mankind. So when Paul says the grace of God has appeared, he's not just saying some abstract principle of grace has appeared. He's saying the person of God who is gracious has appeared. Now let's wait a little bit deeper into that grace that has appeared. What Paul what does Paul want us to understand when he emphasizes that grace, the grace of God has appeared instead of, again, saying the love of God or the compassion of God or any other attribute of God. The word grace, often defined, you've probably heard this a thousand times, is undeserved favor. Undeserved favor. The Bible contrasts grace with wages. When you work, you earn wages, right? You earn and deserve to be paid. We might say thank you when our boss hands us the paycheck, but they're not doing that out of the goodness of their heart. They're doing that because they owe that to you. Romans 4, 4 says, Now to the one who works, his wage is not credited as a favor, and the word there is grace, 
but as what is due. And so in speaking of salvation, Paul goes on to say in Romans 11, verse 6, but if it is by grace, it is no longer on the basis of works. Otherwise, grace is no longer grace. If you believe you can earn God's favor by how you live, whether just trying to be a good person, trying to do good deeds, trying to stay out of the worst kinds of trouble, what you're saying is that you are capable of making God obligated to save you. If you believe you deserve something from God because of how you've lived your life, what you're saying is that God is in debt to you. And that whatever good He does to you is what He should have done to you anyway. And that not only does that denies grace, but that also elevates you above God. To think that you could put God in a position to owe you anything is, is sinful pride. In Romans 11.36, the question is asked rhetorically, who has first given to him that it might be paid back to him? And the answer is no one. No one can do something or give something to God and find themselves in a position of being owed by God. Grace is something we don't deserve. The reason grace is something we should want, though, is because of what we actually deserve. The only thing that God owes us is the just punishment for our unbelief and rebellion against Him. Romans 6.23 says the wages of sin is death. And so Paul says elsewhere in Romans, because of your stubbornness and unrepentant heart, you are storing up wrath. For yourself in the day of wrath and revelation of the righteous judgment of God. The longer we live, the more our sin compounds, the more judgment we deserve from God. The longer we live, the more we lie and lust and curse and cheat and steal and live for ourselves in total disregard for our Creator. And just like a thief, the fact that he loves his wife while he's committing his crimes doesn't mean he's any less guilty and worthy of punishment. In Titus 3.3, 3, Paul describes that manner of life in which we lived before we're saved. He describes it this way, for we also once were foolish ourselves, disobedient, deceived, enslaved to various lusts and pleasures, spending our life in malice and envy, hateful and hating one another. Now you look at a list like that, I look at a list like that, and and we think, well, that didn't define my life. I wasn't all of those things all of the time. But if we're honest with ourselves, we should probably be able to say, I'm guilty of all of those things at least some of the time. And James 2.10 says, whoever keeps the whole law and yet stumbles at one point, he has become guilty of all. Once you're guilty, it's it. You're, you're guilty. And so it doesn't matter if you walk into a school and open fire. Or if you just walk around your office hating your coworkers. It doesn't matter if you're a serial adulterer or if you just walk around lusting after others. All are violations of God's law that earn us the just punishment from God. So we don't want our wages. We don't want what God owes us. What we desperately need is grace. But when we define grace as undeserved favor, we need to be very clear about something. Sometimes we give things to people that they don't deserve. 
My guess is most of you have something under your tree that you have purchased for something that they don't earn. When parents give gifts to their their children, they're not giving wages to their kids. Uh, When you get gifts from friends and loved ones and coworkers, those aren't wages. Sometimes those are expressions of generosity and love, even if there might be some measure of obligation in some cases. But that's not grace. Grace is not the same thing as loving generosity. God is indeed a generous God beyond measure, but He did not send His Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, because He just couldn't wait to see our faces when we looked at that little baby. It would be more accurate to say that grace is receiving something that is not just undeserved, it is ill-deserved. Imagine this scenario in your mind. Imagine that you are hired by a manufacturing company to work on the production line. And over the course of time, as you're inspecting or putting things together, you get discontent with your job. And so you start finding ways to cut corners and do the work faster and make it more mindless. But you're still not content with that, and so you start to take longer breaks because you just don't really care for for what you do. Uh, And then you get bolder, and you start skipping out on shifts. And you realize, pay period after pay period, no matter what you do, that paycheck keeps coming at the same amount. It seems like nobody's noticing. And so you get bolder. You take a day off without telling anyone. And before long, you're taking multiple days at a time. And and still, your paycheck keeps coming time after time. And then for some inexplicable reason, you start to harbor bitterness in your heart toward your company and your bosses. And you decide to sell the trade secrets of your company to their competitor. And then eventually you get so angry toward your boss because that paycheck keeps coming. It's as if he's not paying attention. That You decide, I'm going to torch the place. And so you set your plan. And on that fateful night, you, you, you discern where's the best, most damaging place to start a fire. And in the process of doing that, you notice that the owner's Son is working, but in complete disregard for his life, you set the fire anyway. Well, the next day you show up inspecting the damage that you've created. And your boss comes to you. He says, I know what you've been doing. I know that you've been cutting corners. I know that you've been skipping shifts and not coming to work. I even know that you've sold our secrets to our competitors. And I know that you set that fire last night and that you are responsible for my son's death. And then right then, two police officers come up, which you expect to arrest you on the spot. But at that very moment, the owner hands you an envelope and with tears in his eyes, says, here's your paycheck. But it's not normally what you receive. Included in this check is the inheritance my son was sent, was was going to receive. At that moment, the owner turns to the police officers, confesses to all the crimes as if he had committed them, and they arrest him and take him away. Now, if that sounds insane to you, if that sounds impossible, like that would never happen, 
you're starting to get a sense for what grace is. Grace is receiving the full extent of God's riches when you deserve the full extent of His punishment. God's grace begins with receiving complete forgiveness for all of our sin. And then it goes further to bestow on its recipients the full righteousness and inheritance of the Lord Jesus Christ. Such that when God sees you as a believer in Jesus Christ, He doesn't see the wicked person that you are. He sees not even just an innocent person. He sees you wearing that uniform of Christ that has all of the ribbons and all of the accolades and all of the accomplishments that Christ Himself deserves. If you think about the word grace as an acronym, it means God's riches at Christ's expense. When Jesus was born into this world, the grace of God appeared. The sunrise from on high shined the light of God's grace in this world and lost in this world that is dark and lost in sin and condemnation. Most of the people who were anticipating and looking forward to the Messiah, they were looking for a ruler. They were looking for someone who would uh, become king of the nation and kick out the Romans and take over and conquer Israel's enemies. They wanted the sovereign rule of God to appear. Well, that day will come the second time Christ comes. But at his first coming, at his birth that we celebrate every December, It is the grace of God that appeared. That leads to our third heading, the result of God's grace. The result of God's grace. The result of God's grace is the opportunity for salvation for everyone. Again, Paul says there in Titus 2.11, hope you have it memorized by now. The grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation to all men. The phrase to all men could also be translated for all men, depending on uh, Bible translation, you might have one or the other, but that really the meaning is the same. This does not mean that all people are saved. That's universalism. But that salvation is available to all people. At the end of his sermon in Acts, Paul preaches this, Therefore, having overlooked the times of ignorance, God is now declaring to men that all people everywhere should repent because he has fixed a day in which he will judge the world in righteousness. It's Acts 17. If, if all people are saved by the grace of God, then there would be nothing that we needed to do, to do. There would be no call to believe and repent. But there is that call. Believe. Repent lest the wrath of God come crashing down on you in the day of judgment. Well, what do we need to be saved from? We don't need to be saved from Satan and his demons. We don't need to be saved from financial ruin or political turmoil. We don't need to be saved from government encroachment or persecution. We don't need salvation from low self-esteem or microaggressions. We don't need to be saved from sickness and death or variants of endless diseases that plague us. We don't need to be saved from taxes or poverty. We, need, we don't need to be saved from injustice and oppression. What we need to be saved from is the just wrath of God 
who does not allow violations of His divine law to go unpunished. You and I need to be saved from a perfect judge who knows every violation we've committed in thought, word, and deed and is ready to hammer that gavel down in condemnation. But if God really is a perfect judge, how can we be saved? If He's a perfect judge and we are violators of of His law, what mechanism exists for a good judge to let the guilty go free? The answer in Scripture is substitution. If someone would take the punishment and condemnation we deserve, the justice of, of God can be satisfied and we can be set free. That is what the grace of God accomplishes. The Son of God, Jesus, was born into this world. And as He grew, He lived the life that no one else could live. He perfectly lived out the character of God. He perfectly obeyed the law of God and fulfilled all the righteous righteous requirements of the law. He never said a sinful word. He never thought a sinful thought. He never did a sinful deed. He perfectly lived His life in obedience to the Father. And He proved that He's the Messiah by healing people of their diseases and deformities, by raising the dead, by controlling the weather, by creating things out of nothing. He even knew the thoughts of others. And eventually, he taught the truth so compellingly and he had such authority that the Jewish leaders were put to shame and they got jealous. Eventually, they got sick of his popularity and they devised a plan to murder him, a plan which they put into action. Arresting Jesus in the dark of night, putting him through multiple illegal trials and unjustly condemning him to death on false charges. And as he was tortured and hung on that tree, not only did he endure the wrath of men who hated him, but he endured the wrath of God who poured out his judgment on behalf of those who would believe. He absorbed the full fury of the wrath of God as the substitutionary sacrifice on our behalf. And even through that, he continued to exhibit his perfect character. When he was being tried illegally, he didn't stand up for his rights. When he was being falsely accused, he didn't try and correct the record. When he was being mistreated and abused, he didn't retaliate. Instead, he worshiped the Father and entrusted his life to him. And when he had finished all that God had sent him to do, and he completely paid off the sin debt, he gave up his spirit and died. He was taken down off that cross and put in a tomb of a rich man, a tomb that had its opening covered over and sealed by a rock. And he was gone. He was dead. It was over. Three days later, the sunrise from on high shined. And he rose from the dead. And the resurrection of Jesus Christ proved that the Father accepted his sacrifice as the substitution for sinners who would believe. All that is left for men and women for us is to hear this news that forgiveness of sins and eternal life is available to any and all who would believe in Jesus Christ and give their lives to him.
It doesn't matter what your sins are. It doesn't matter if you're an adulterer, a murderer, a thief, a liar, if you're sexually immoral or a drunkard or a drunk addict, drug addict. It doesn't matter if you're a swindler or covetous or an idolater. It doesn't matter what you've done or how much you've done it or for how long you've done it. Forgiveness of sins is available to you and to me if we would but believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, the one whose birth we celebrate at Christmas. Friend, if you're a visitor here for the first time, or if you've been here for a while, and you have not put your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, today is the best day to give your life to Christ. Because it is today, and today is the day of salvation. Let this be your first Christmas as a true worshiper of the King who has come. Let this be be the first Christmas that you truly understand the peace and the joy that we sing about at this time of the year. You just need to agree with God that you're a sinner and the Lord Jesus Christ is a Savior who has paid for your sin and that He's risen again You do that and God will forgive you. Isaiah 55, 7 says, Let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts and let him return to the Lord and he will have compassion on him and to our God for he will abundantly pardon. In Proverbs it says, He who conceals his transgressions will not prosper, but he who confesses and forsakes them will find compassion. Forgiveness is guaranteed to the one who asks for it sincerely with a heart of repentance, a heart that turns away from evil and self and turns toward God. Do that today if you have not done that before. Oh, Bible Church, this is what is worth celebrating. This is what transcends all of the the niceties, the, the beauty, the decoration, the food, the gifts. This and this alone is worth celebrating year after year after year. It doesn't matter who's with you or who's not with you. It doesn't matter how you've been hurt or how you've been suffering. It doesn't matter how you've been blessed and how you're successful. This and this alone is worth celebrating. And so this week, if you have peace and joy in your heart, as you enjoy all of what is coming Uh, and what you're anticipating, make sure that this is the center of your celebration, that you are remembering the Lord Jesus Christ. If your heart is filled with sorrow and grief, remember that it is for this reason that Jesus came. He came to shine the light of His grace in our darkness. And though we still suffer and hurt in this life, What Jesus did ensures that those who believe can live with that hopeful expectation of Christ's second coming and the glory that is to come when all sin will be done away with. You can celebrate that. Friend, if if your anticipation of Christmas is muted because you know that you are the reason of suffering in your life and in the lives and and broken relationships around you. Believe in Jesus Christ and you can have the forgiveness of your sins. There are all kinds of people 
celebrating in all kinds of ways this week. There are even those who will be singing carols uh, in complete ignorance and unbelief of what they're saying. No matter what everyone else is doing, you worship Christ the King who was born in Bethlehem and died on Calvary and rose from the dead and is in heaven today. Let's pray. How thankful we are, O Lord, that we are not left with trivial things to celebrate. We don't have to get ourselves in the mood and sing happy songs and pretend like everything is okay. But we actually have a truth, a reality, a God that is worth celebrating because of the grace that He has poured out. Lord Jesus, we praise You and we worship You, not as a baby, but as one who came from heaven as a baby, but who grew up and gave Your life for us. I pray for each one here, no matter what is going on in their life, no matter who they're with, whether alone or with fewer people than they would like to be, whether they're suffering or whether they're rejoicing, Lord, would you loom large in their mind? Would you draw near to them? And would you be praised in their heart as each one of us looks to Jesus Christ, the grace of God who has appeared, bringing salvation to all men. Pray these things in His name. Amen.